Living in the lion's den has taken us from Nebuchadnezzar stealing the gold vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem to God's promise to Daniel of resurrection to reign with the Son of Man in God's kingdom. As our study leader Dave Wurzen takes us on a quick look back over the theme, the plot, and the major lessons, you are again challenged to answer the question, who is the king of the mountain, and where will you place your trust when all the smoke has cleared? When I was a kid, I used to go up to Maine. In Maine, I would play on this big pile of dirt that was right next door to the house, and we did what almost every guy in this room has done. We played, who is king of the mountain? Who's going to be king of the mountain? And man, we'd wrestle, and you'd throw everybody up, and you'd get up to the top, and then you'd throw off the other. And I didn't realize that I was enacting the story of the Bible, and Daniel really takes that story to another level, because the whole story of the Bible is who will be the king of the mountain? Who has the right to rule? We all know Genesis 1 says, let us make man in in his own image, let's make them male and female, and let them rule. The point of God creating this planet was for for him to be able to rule this beautiful world and for human beings to be his his vice regions underneath it. Then we have Genesis 3 in the fall, and we have the human being joining the dark side. And we all know that the key verse that introduces the story of the Bible, the great conflict, is that there will be enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, and then there's going to be this incredible story where the woman produces a great male child. Somehow the serpent's able to strike him, but then that male child rises up and crushes the serpent. The whole story of the Bible is the story of who's going to be the king of the mountains. Daniel chapter 1, it's decision time. When you turn to Daniel chapter 1, You've got 605 B.C., the the Nebuchadnezzar's armies have just come down and invaded Jerusalem. They took some of these guys captive, and Daniel was one of them with three others. And the big decision is who's going to be the king of the mountain and which side do I want to join? It looks like in Daniel 1, it looks like the serpent seed is one. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is destroying the people of Israel. It gets worse. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar totally destroys the temple. A 14-year-old teenager with his three buddies decides. It says Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. Daniel made a commitment, I'm going to live on Yahweh's side. The great I am is going to be my lord and king, not the culture of Babylon and not Nebuchadnezzar. And he expressed this by making a strong commitment, even risking his life, in order to, to be true to the Lord God. And now the next six chapters are going to show how the Lord is going to protect, protect his children. Every one of you need to decide this same decision. Daniel 1 through 6 talks about the history of Daniel and his three buddies and their interaction with the powers of the serpent. And we find out that Daniel made a good choice. When he was 14, he might have said, this is crazy. Why did I choose to live for for the living God, when his temple's destroyed and his people are in exile. 
And yet the Lord took care of him. In Daniel chapter 2, we learn that the Lord protects Daniel and his three buddies from the wrath of the king. All the wise men are going to be killed. And Daniel prays, gets the dream of destiny and interpreted for him from the Lord. And God protects his people. Daniel chapter 2 lays out for you the whole history of the planet. And it reinforces this theme. It's the, it's the story of the dream of destiny. And that's what chapter 2 is about. And it presents the four world empires culminating in the stone cut out without hands. And that's a clue. One of the pictures of the Messiah that we just worshipped and we just remembered and we're looking forward to him coming back is introduced to us in Daniel chapter 2. It's that incredible mystery of who's going to be the stone that's cut out without hands that destroys all the emperors of the earth. God also protects his Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. He shows the children of Israel that in the fiery trial, sometimes God preserves us away from the trials. He keeps us safe before we get into the trial. Daniel 3 shows us sometimes in life we have to go through the fiery furnace and the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, will be there right with us. And so the stone cut out without hands in chapter 3 becomes a very personal heavenly being that is right there in the furnace with the children of Israel. We move to the next section. We have Daniel the lion's den. You jump all the way to the end of this historical section of the story of Daniel and his three buddies, and we have that famous children's story, and again, it culminates with this great conflict. Daniel's in his 80s. A new empire has come in. A new part of the serpent's dominion has raised its head. What's going to happen? Daniel at 80 makes the same choice he made when he was a kid. I'm going to serve the Lord. And we have Daniel being protected from the lion's den. Again, the Lord has shown us, just like the three men in the fiery furnace, just like Daniel in the lion's den, eventually during the tribulation period, God is going to protect. He's going to be with. He's ultimately going to bring victory for his people that choose to follow him. Now we go back, and the the way that the story is weaving together, I told you that it's about God overpowering his enemies. In chapter 4 and 5, we've got a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And you can relate this. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, that's a story where he went crazy, and he had zoanthropy, this horrible disease that caused him to become like a bird and grow great claws and all that, that incredible story. But chapter 4 ends with him repenting. And with this man that represented at the beginning of the book, the ultimate of the enemies of the Lord, the Lord has now overpowered him. And he has won the victory, and Nebuchadnezzar is bowing before the living God. The conflict in chapter 5, though, shows us another terrible contrast, because Belshazzar, he doesn't submit. And that's the chapter with their writing on the wall. Belshazzar doesn't listen to the example of his grandfather, or his great-grandfather one of his distant relatives, and he knew the story well because Daniel reminds him of that when he interprets the writing on the wall. He says, Belshazzar, you didn't follow the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learns, and Daniel wants you to see as you're reading this book in the history of Daniel and his three buddies, God can deal with the most powerful rulers in the world, and they decide, will they bow before the living God or will they choose to arrogantly rebel against him and end in death? When we get to chapter 7 through 12, we move out of the story of the history of Daniel's three friends and himself, and we now look forward to the history, 7 through 12 is prophetic predictions of what's going to happen. And it actually covers the period from Daniel's time all the way until a time that's still future to us. 
Some big contrast you need to do in chapter 7, you have the Son of Man defeating the four beasts. And the heartbeat of that chapter is in Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14, where you get this incredible, powerful Son of Man, this heavenly, powerful being that is filling in more the details of the stone cut out without hands. Another picture for us of who Jesus is and what he's going to do for us. And he defeats the four beasts. He ends up victorious. At the end of chapter 7, it interprets the Son of Man as being all those that choose to follow the Lord. And so the Son of Man is intimately joined with his people. In fact, the end of chapter 7 doesn't really talk so much about the Son of Man as it did in the middle of the chapter. It talks more about you as the people of God. In chapter 8, we learn about an Old Testament Antichrist. I've given you, this is a picture of one of Antiochus IV's coins, and that's a picture of him on the front side and the back side. He has the God Apollo. It shows you that he's God manifest, he thought he was. Well, God destroys him. In chapter 8, verse 25, it speaks about him being demolished and being destroyed. If you move into the next chapter, in chapter 9 through 11, you've got God defeating not the Old Testament Antichrist, but 9 through 11 focuses on God defeating the New Testament Antichrist. And you've got one of the most powerful predictions of Jesus and his coming. Chapter 9, 25 through 26, tells us that there's going to be a great prince that comes, and Daniel's saying the stone cut out without hands from chapter 2 is going to come to earth. He tells that the Son of Man that was with the children in the fiery furnace. He tells about the Son of Man in chapter 7 that destroyed the four ugly beasts. In chapter 9, he tells us an incredible thing that he predicts that Son of Man is going to come to the Holy Temple. But he's going to be cut off. The Genesis 3 story. The serpent strikes him. And he's going to be cut off. But we know that that's not the end of the story because as we go further in the book of Daniel, we find out that eventually God's kingdom wins. But in chapter 9, the conflict is powerfully set up like a great storyteller, only God's telling his story in history. A great storyteller doesn't resolve things right away. So when I read this prophecy in chapter 9, 25 to 26, I'm saying it just said that the prince who will come, the people of the prince who will come are going to cut off the Messiah. And I'm saying, well, man, what's going to happen? The Messiah's cut off. Does that mean that God's kingdom is lost? All of that tension is involved in the story. And chapter 10, 11, and 12 answers that question for us. It predicts Jesus is coming in death, but it goes on in the next section, not only predict the coming of the Son of Man, but it also talked about God's defeat of the Antichrist. It talks about how in chapter 9 he's praying. In chapter 10 he has this incredible vision. And then the angels begin, as we've been talking about in chapter 11, it spells out and unites the defeat of the Old Testament Antichrist, the defeat of the New Testament Antichrist, and then it culminates in chapter 12 with the rest and resurrection, which ensures me that in the end, God's Messiah wins. It means that the Messiah is resurrected from the dead because the Messiah is the one that's going to take the lead in that. So I close the book of Daniel with Michael, this great archangel, defeating the Antichrist, the promise of resurrection, and we close the book with Daniel resting with his fathers in death, and he's going to be resurrected at the end of time. The decision, the major point, like when an Old Testament child was being taught this book, when a great Hebrew daddy was sharing this book with his kids, he would say, what are you going to decide? 
How are you going to live your life? I've just told you about this great conflict. Which side of the conflict are you going to be on? And so the book closes with, I'm going to choose the side that I can go all the way into death. I can live into my 80s, but it's not going to be the end. The armies of the earth keep marching back and forth, but I'm going to rest with my father. And in the end, there's going to be resurrection time. And I'm going to live, and I'm going to get the portion that God has planned for us. That's the kind of the synthesis, an overview of where we've been going, the book of Daniel. It's an incredible encouragement to me, and I'm going to give you a chance. The early church used to, when they met together in my church family that I was raised in, we had the opportunity to not just listen to someone talk like we usually do here, but we got a chance to interact. And the early church, it talks about the Corinthian church, for example, meeting and they would encourage and teach one another. So as we close the service, it's our time to respond. So I know the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you over the last several months, actually, in the book of Daniel. So this is your time. Let's encourage each other and teach one another. What are some of the things that you've learned from the book of Daniel? We tend to look at Scripture a little differently than we did when we were younger. But I found this time as we went through it, I was really looking more at Daniel himself and how God was interacting Mm. with him. And I was, I was really touched by the fact that, oh, I guess two-thirds of the book deals with him when he's over 70. And as I approach 70 now myself, I'm beginning to realize why. As you get older, you begin to think more about what have I accomplished in my life? Uh, has it been worth it? Have I done what the Lord asked me to do? And Daniel is now facing the end of his life, and he's been gone from his home country for his entire life he probably will not be able to go back i'm having to make a guess on this but i suspect that he was too important to darius to let him go back with the other people so he he knew he was going to die in babylon and was his life worth it was it worth it to spend all of this time serving a foreign king and trying to serve god at the same time and god just spent an incredible amount of time with him, just encouraging him, letting him know that he was in control, he knew what he was doing, and that he cared about Daniel and about his struggles. And that really meant a lot to me. And mm. just that encouragement at the end that you, you go your ways and you're going to rest, but in the end, I'm going to raise you up to your reward. Uh, that meant a lot to me. You know, one of my heroes in the faith, and, and there are a lot of them in this room today, Uh, But one of mine who's now sitting with Jesus and enjoying the presence of God himself is Al Balcom. And Al used to teach us, he would say, now listen, it's a whole lot better to hand out the bouquets of roses while someone is still here to enjoy them than to wait and have them at a funeral. And actually, Dave, uh, I'm going to get to Daniel in a second. But (laughs) I'm here today to share a bouquet of roses because of someone who taught me the book of Daniel is a little bitty fella. And I remember through a lot of my growing up years of thinking of, of the younger Daniel. And I remember, and I'll tell you who this was. Some of you are going to know. She's one of my favorite girlfriends <laughs> in all the earth. The, the, the phrase was dare, dare to be like Daniel or dare to be a Daniel and to make wise decisions as a young person. And Terry, not unlike yourself, I've not quite gotten all there yet, but I'm trying. But I remembered thinking of Daniel mostly in his younger years, but in 
especially as we've gone through this book, I'm reminded of Daniel in his later years, and he lived a life for the Lord and honoring the Lord and choosing to make wise decisions for the Lord into his 70s and 80s and, and 90s. And he was engaged un until the end. And we are a, a blended family. We're a multi-generational family. And that's, I, I really love that because we have senior saints here, a bunch of them in this service, who are still engaged. Mm -hmm. And as someone who wants to be one of those senior saints someday, and I'm getting really close, I can tell you, that is a great encouragement to see people in their 70s and 80s and even in their 90s still engaged. And one of those people that Al would thank me for honoring today, I believe, is Ella Curry. She's the one who taught me Daniel as a little bitty fella and to make wise decisions. So thank you, Ella, for being such an example. And to many of you older saints who are still engaged and are still living Daniel and still teaching us about Jesus, that, that's just really powerful to me. God bless you. Amen. One thing that stood out with me and Daniel, and I know when uh, Matt was talking and several others, I'm in that age group. I've lived through a lot of uh, adversity. And just as a reminder to some of the younger people here today, the thing that stands out with me about Daniel is regardless of what was going on in Daniel's life and in the different uh, rulers that he had to serve under and live with, the adversities that we face today, one thing we can always count on, God is sovereign, and his kingdom is everlasting. And whatever is going on in the rest of the world, we have that, that we can lean on and depend upon and know that he's there and that we can trust him and we can rest in him because to know that he is he's sovereign, it doesn't make any difference what else is going on. He's sovereign and his kingdom's forever. Just uh, right along with that, what uh, really impressed me about Daniel this time, I think that we can get really intimidated by a book like Daniel, but just how God's Word is living and active, and at this period of time in our own lives, to study Daniel 9, when he recants his own sin and the sin of his people, and asks the Lord to forgive them and come and, and save them. And I was thinking, just what a perfect time for us to study that, and I love that about Daniel 9. Amen. Isn't that neat how the Holy Spirit works among us? And that's just an example. What a great emphasis. You saw an illustration of why we need young and old and everything in between because we learn from each other and teach each other. What a neat thing. God is in control. My brother wrote a song, Our God is in Control. And I've often thought that as we've been going through the book of Daniel. And we are in trouble sometimes, but nobody in this room would say that we're in as hard a time as the fiery furnace that we're in a hard time of being thrown in the mouth of the lions, that we've got a vicious tyrant that's seeking to destroy our life. So what a great thing to know if Daniel and his three friends can trust God's incredible deliverance and salvation, we can trust him. Amen?